0: Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club, Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to The Formed Book Club, where Joseph Pierce, David Duder, and I continue to discuss Audrey Duderbach's book, The Church, Paradox and Mystery. Uh, It's a phenomenal book, and we spent some time on it because there's so much to discuss here. Uh, We left off last session uh, with finishing the discussion on pagan religions and the fathers of the church. And to, to summarize briefly, Uh, the idea which was very common among the fathers of the church and was kind of revived by people like the Lubach and von Balthasar in the mid-20th century and then was part of the council was that the old expression, there's no salvation outside the church, is fundamentally true, that the only way that we can be saved is through Jesus Christ and his mystical body, the church. That does not mean that only those who are visibly and explicitly members through baptism are saved. But it does mean that Christ's presence in secret ways throughout the cosmos and the universe and the world and our planet from the beginning of time until the end is such that all those whom God has created in his image have access to salvation through Christ and through his church. But that does not mean, in the Reinerian idea, there's an anonymous Christianity, that everybody's really Christian, and all Christ does is tell us who we really are. But no, the more important point is that Christ brings both redemption and revelation. That is, he's the one who saves us, and Adam, and others, and he's the one who reveals to us uh, that he is, a, he's our salvation. Anyway, that's a that's a brief summary of that chapter, which is a very important chapter. But now we go on to something which is more historical. The fifth chapter, Paul the sixth, took him to Jerusalem. Any comments? Any monologues? Well,
1: on the very first page, he's saying how the Pope is about to announce something extraordinary a pope going on a pilgrimage being something extraordinary. And the reason why that caught my eye is because I entered the church during the pontificate of John Paul II, who was a pilgrim extraordinaire. I mean, he, he traveled so many places, and I just didn't appreciate at the time how rare this really was. And then on page 137, uh, de Lubach specifies that Paul the VI was the first pope to leave Italy in over a century and a half.
2: Yeah, I, 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 I that, that, I'm, I'm the same. I came also came to the church during the pontificate of uh, St. John Paul II. Um, but I think there's a there's a message here, perhaps, or a lesson, is that you know that John Paul II sort of was a saint uh, and a pope, but he's not. The every saint or every pope, you know, and you know he had he had his own charisma and he did things his way and he he travelled the world and that was his charisma, and I and I, and you know I think that and he was a and he was a good holy man and I think there's a problem with that is they we not expect every priest to travel the world and be a good holy man and. <laughs> History tells us that most priests don't travel the world, and most popes don't travel the world, and many popes, at least, are not holy men. So I think that's important because what we've set in place is a, you know, a cardboard cutout. Every pope is going to be as good in not just as good as JP two, but in JP
0: 2s way of being good.
1: Right? Yeah, yeah. We sort of set him up as a model when because that was the only pope I ever knew. And yes.
0: And I, I suspect in the Middle Ages and before and sometimes after, if you were living in uh, England or Germany or Africa, you might not even know who the Pope was. Yes. You know, but now, you know, every breath he takes or every statement he makes on an airplane becomes known worldwide. Yeah. There's a value to that and there's a danger to that. Yes. You know? But you said. The church stands. The church stands on
2: full and on stands or falls and every off-the-coffee mark of a pope reported by the media. I mean, there's
0: something wrong with that, right? Yes. And as, as I, who am now a very old man, I think I can, can, I can categorize myself that way, who have lived through several papacies, as a Catholic, one must respect the authority of the See of Peter, no question about it. But one can't adjust one's spirituality and one's faith and what we least, by the current pope. I mean, I don't know how many popes I've had, five or six in my lifetime. So, and the pope's their primary purpose is to preserve and guard and protect what has been passed on from the beginnings of the church, the deposit of faith. And therefore, we, we must love the pope uh, you know, in his role as pope. We must be obedient to his, you know, authoritative statements. But Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope. Mm -hmm. The Pope is the vicar of Christ, stands in the place of Christ, but he's supposed to lead us to Christ. Uh, Therefore, we see, especially if you learn history, that there's been rises and falls in the papacy over time. And we here at this particular, you know, table and where you are, Joseph, We've been blessed with some of the greatest popes in the history of the church. I think 33 years of John Paul II and Pope Benedict. I mean, those are high points in the papacy, really. Mm. But as you said, Vivian, the pope hadn't been out of Rome for 100 years. No pope after Peter had ever visited the Holy Land. Wow. I mean, thats I was shocked wow. at that because it's such a pilgrimage wow. site, you know? Right. And
1: that's the reason why he went. Why and that's the reason why he went. The land, his own uh, quote here that uh, de Lubac uh, copies on page 136, you know, the land from which Peter came. We shall visit that venerable land from which Peter came and to which not one of his successors had returned. That was Father's point. And why? Why? In, uh, we shall return humbly and very briefly in a spirit of prayer penitence, and spiritual renewal, so as to offer Christ his church, to call our separated brothers to this one and holy church, to beg divine mercy on behalf of the peace that still appears to be so weak and precarious, and finally, to beseech Christ our Lord for the salvation of the entire human race. We know this is God's desire to save all, and so it is good and right and just for us to pray that Somehow, some way, that happens, and that's what he's going to do.
0: And there were really two fundamental, hmm, which I call them, uh, two fundamental purposes for this meeting. One was, as you said, which he explains again on page one thirty-seven in the middle, but quite properly, the ecumenical, the ecumenical effect such an initiative received the most attention. It was, in fact, reasonable to suppose that it could do more for the cause of union than any amount of writing or discussion. That is, showing that the Catholic Church, you know, originates from Jesus, just as the other churches do. But the second fundamental thing, more important, to Lubach would say, was a visible expression of the fact that the Church is subordinate to Christ, that the the, the Pope comes and humbly kneels in those places where Christ was born and where he lived and taught and where he died, a, a visible icon of the church's submission to Christ.
2: Yeah, I would just um, like to say, if we can move to page 139, I'm going to have to put my glasses. on. I'm afraid that I'm finally having to surrender to reading glasses, so forgive me, not that it's a sin. Uh, so the middle of page 139, If we may rightly expect glorious results from the post pilgrimage to Jerusalem, for Christian unity as well as world peace, these are not the primary, even the principal reasons why the gesture, however unexpected, is admirably opportune in the present situation. It is, first of all, a gesture of faith, Mm -hmm. a gesture of faith par excellence, the essential gesture to make the full signification of the church appear. So this is just following up farther than what you just said you know c.s lewis famously said if you know if, if if you um want the world uh in order to get to heaven you'll get neither you know if if you i'm garbling that Do you remember this now uh, you might not remember so put the spot here now basically if you seek the world um uh instead of heaven you will not you'll get neither but if you seek heaven you'll get you'll get the world thrown in. That's essentially what he said. And I think the important thing is here is that we've got to get things in the right order or priority. Yes, there might be some good political consequences and there might be good, some ecumenical consequences of the Pope visiting Jerusalem, but the Pope's visiting Jerusalem because he's a Christian. <laughs> you know, uh, that's the most important thing. And then everything else might be a correlative, might be a, a fruit, but but that's not the reason. And again, what we see here. Is the Lubak being very Christocentric in his understanding of the church and his understanding
0: of, 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 of Paul the Six motives? Yes, yeah, so let me lose all our listeners and viewers here as I sing. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all things will be added to you. Anyway, anyway, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all things will be added to you. Mm-hmm. But and Joseph, yeah, just below what you quoted on the same page 139 no more expressive gesture could have been found than the sight of the church going in the person of visible head to prostrate herself at the feet of her Lord. Yep. I actually
2: highlight the following sentence after what you've just quoted. By this pilgrimage, the entire church, tiny and as it were, prostrate, prepares to go and kiss the feet of Christ.
1: Mm-hmm. And then down further in the middle of that page, <laughs> okay. not only to recall them to their origins, but also invite them to reattach themselves to the very center, the heart of their Christian faith. In other words, you know, we always need to renew that commitment, don't we?
0: We do. It's called anamnesis. For one thing, remembering, going back. And I think about this now as I'm an older priest celebrating Mass. I mean, I've, there's no mass reading I haven't heard before, even a three-year cycle. You know, I've probably heard it 20 times. Well, 50 years by three, so 17 times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's it's not new. But I have to say it again, repeat it, and then relate it to what's happening today because it's always new in its application. Mm-hmm. But we we need to be reminded every moment, every day, of truths which are eternal, which is why, for example, the church has has had this tradition of the Angelus, you know, remembering the incarnation at morning, midday, and night. Why do that three times a day? Because we need to be called back from all the attractions and distractions of our work and the world around us to the fundamental truths. But that's just remembering. Then what about Entering into the essence of it, that's what the sacrament is. That, that's the Eucharist. You know, we receive our Lord every day. We're blessed to do that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Um, anything more on this chapter? Paul the VI, Pilgrim to Jerusalem. Vivian, I see you circled that word there. And...
1: I circled the word no.
0: Yeah.
1: He does talk a little bit about. You know, trying to overcome this triumphalism and, uh, and clericalism and all that. But this gesture, you know, the Pope is acting very humbly the way yeah. he went about doing this. And, uh, and, and de Lubach ends this chapter by saying, no, the church is not seeking her own glory, but only that of her Lord.
0: Yeah, I don't think triumphalism is a problem so much anymore. No,
1: <laughs> it's not.
0: Well, now we come to chapter 6 it's a phenomenal chapter it's called like make a, a comment
2: father before you oh. set the scene because obviously you know for, uh von much much better than i do i'd like to say something about this chapter in general having you know recently read it it's what i would say about this book you know that i knew just about nothing about the lubac except what i've read secondhand in other things so it's a great joy and an enlightenment to me to actually be able to read this and again Ditto with von Balthasar. I've only knew von Balthasar secondhand through what I've heard other people say in, in the other writings. And of course, I'm doing the same here. It's not von Balthasar. But it, yeah. But there's a whole chapter by the Lubak on von Balthasar which actually opened my eyes and my mind to aspects of him which I either didn't know at all or only half digested, only half gleaned. So it's been, a, again, a very fruitful experience for me reading this chapter.
0: Well, especially in light of some of the more popular Expressions of people on Balthasar who are highly critical of him. I mean, he's a human being; he's just you know, like we are. But you know, some people can can focus on one little thing they think is some kind of incredibly terrible thing, which may or may not be terrible. But when you look at Balthasar, as the expresses it, you know, describes him here. I mean, th- this is a man of culture, a man of the church, a man who loved the church, who who, who served the church. And maybe you. One can. He's, he's a theologian. We can disagree with this or that, but you. You can't simply write him off as some kind of a, a heretic. That's been said too.
1: Yep, in uh, print even.
0: Yeah. So chapter six, a witness of Christ in the Church, Hans Urs von Balthasar. Now this is a book about the Council. Really, it, it, these are commentaries in Vatican two, and Balthasar although one of the preeminent theologians of his day, was not invited as a paritus, an expert to the council. Why not? Council of '62. Balthasar left the Jesuit order in 1947. Uh, that was seen as a bad thing in those days. I always told uh, our friend who's now deceased, Bishop Morlino of Madison, Wisconsin, I said, Bishop Morlino, you are the most brilliant Jesuit, uh, most brilliant bishop In our conference, because you left the
1: Jesuits. (laughs) (laughs) He was a
0: Jesuit novice, and he left at some point. Uh,
1: But he remained a priest, and then went on to be a bishop. bishop. And Balthazar remained a priest and was named cardinal. That's right. By John Paul II. So it isn't as though he, yes, fled his vows and went off to... In the
0: middle of 145, the Lubach says, speaking about Balthazar's non-participation in the council... Perhaps all in all, it is better that he was allowed to devote himself completely to his task, to the continuation of a body of works so immense in size and depth that the contemporary church has seen nothing comparable. For a long time to come, the entire church is going to profit from it. So this is a providential thing. That he wasn't involved in the, in the politics and the mm-hmm. you know daily activities and the tremendous amount of work you have to do do when you're at the council, he was able to begin to, you know, to do his uh, his work. Well, I remember, uh, I think I mentioned to you people that, those uh, have watched this for a while, that I come to do the this meeting of the Papal Theological Commission uh, in 1970 or 71, something like that, and I was there, and it was a commission meeting for two or three days, so a lot of papers and discussions and so on. But, but during that time, <laughs> Balthasar read all the historical works of Shakespeare because he was preparing his volume, Theodrama, in which he, he made the point that no theologians in the past have ever drawn the theological consequences from Christian drama, which he considers Shakespeare to be a you know, principal expression. So here's this man... At a, at a meeting with committees and stuff like that, and he's reading all of Shakespeare's historical works.
2: Yeah. Now, I a question, Father. As you know, von Balthasar, this obviously, this book was written in the late 60s. How much more did von Balthasar write after this?
0: Oh, well, uh, as I say, his, his major work, this trilogy, which is Theological Aesthetics, which is seven volumes, and Theological Dramatics, which is, I think, five volumes. In theological logic, which is three volumes, uh, he was only at the beginning or the early, towards the middle of the, that middle thing, Theodrama, uh, in 1970. So he went on to finish that and also the theologic. So he had a lot, he wrote a lot more after that. This tribute basically is a tribute based upon only a part of the man's corpus, in fact. Yes, yes.
1: And Father, why don't you tell us? Just how it is that you did know von Balthasar so well, you studied with him and when you worked on your doc dissertation or well
0: uh, did I tell a story maybe well anyway, not in this book okay well uh because I grew a beard back in nineteen sixty eight I ended up going to France for theology that that's not obvious how that would happen, but anyway, that's what happened. <laughs> And I got to know Father de Lubac there in Lyon in 1969, where he was uh, considered démodé, passé, out of fashion, you know, uh, thing of the past, because that was post-conciliar, you know, confusion. But I got to know him, and he was a wonderful, friendly, helpful mentor for me. But uh, I remember... He was, because uh, he was. I think we Can talked, I
1: interrupt just a sec? Yeah. Did I ask you to explain your relationship with the Lubach or von Balthasar?
0: Von Balthasar.
1: Okay, good. I just want to I mean, make, sure, make sure you're when, headed when, down when that you, when track.
0: When you're my age, Vivian, if you're lucky to get to that age, uh, because it's a blessing to be old, you know, as I say, there's only one cure for old age, <laughs> and that's death. But uh,
2: well, I, I I put Vivian's uh, confusion there down to her jet lag, which probably is similar to old age.
0: Okay, uh, so uh, he was often bedridden because he'd been injured in World War One, And I would sometimes come and serve his mess. I wasn't a priest at the time. And I remember, you know, he, he gets out of bed, he, he puts on his shoes, takes off his slippers, puts on his shoes. I said, well, what's that for? He said, well, I, I can't throw a mask in my slippers. I need to put my shoes on, you know. So we went down there. I, You know, I served his mass. And then afterwards, I said, well, at that time, I realized I was going to be asked to go for a doctorate by my superiors. And I asked him, well, Father de Lubach, uh what do you think I should write my thesis on? He said, oh, he said, Hans Urs von Balthasar, the greatest theologian of our time, And perhaps of all time, sorry, and the Dominican is watching this, but anyway. And then I said, well, uh, okay, I didn't know what's from Balthasar. And where should I do this? He said, well, there's a very fine young theologian in Regensburg, Germany, a professor there, Professor Ratzinger, uh, and I'll write him on your behalf. And so that's what, so it was the Lubach that wrote Ratzinger to have me do my thesis on Balthasar. And then in the summers, Balthasar would invite the Lubach to come with him up to the Rigi Husli, which you visited a couple of weeks ago or last week.
1: Just last Vivian. week. Vivian.
0: Uh, a little chalet cabin on this mountain in Switzerland, which is surrounded by a, a big lake on three sides. You can't, can't get there by car. You have to take a cog railway or a zeilbahn, you know, one of these cable telephorias in front. I don't want to call them in English. But anyway, and so – I was there with another scholastic that is a Jesuit in studies, uh, helping, doing the cooking, of the dishes, and and celebrating mass with the Lubach and his brothers. So that that was? I mean, that was part of my knowledge of him was from you know that direct association.
1: And didn't you write some of your dissertation at that little house?
0: Uh, yes, another a great. I would say one of the great philosophers of the twentieth century was almost totally unknown. Ferdinand Ulrich, who was a friend of Balthasar's, ended the box. And uh, one winter, yes, we went up to Ricky Husli and he helped me write my thesis. Yeah.
1: And your topic of your thesis was?
0: <laughs> um, the origin of the church in Christ's kenosis, according to the ecclesiology of hans and Balthasar. Oh, wow. and Joseph, that helps answer your previous question, because this was... 1974, and one reason that I was able to write my thesis so quickly is that Balthasar hadn't finished writing all of his books. I didn't have to read them all, and there was not a bunch of secondary literature on him, so I could do a thesis on this on this theologian without having to read this immense. Like, if you do something on Augustine, you know, you've got literally thousands of volumes about him. You know, whereas on Balthasar at that time didn't have all that. that secondary literature
1: and it's, kenosis being this emptying emptying
0: self yeah, that's philippians 2 christ emptied himself yeah kenosis
1: and so. and that comes up in this chapter with the whole lance and everything so we'll 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 that sets us up for the we'll yeah, discussion that, where it's good. going to end up with this chapter uh page
0: 146 i'm just going to
1: yes please quote do cuz i practically coming. underlined everything this was like okay. i i just i uh, this Chapter really because I was just there in Switzerland visiting these places, uh, important to von Balthasar. And anyway, this chapter just moved me very much.
0: Last paragraph in one on page 146, just the first sentence. De Lubach says of von Balthasar, his spiritual diagnosis of our present civilization is the most penetrating to be found. Yep, now. now all of us who are here, you know, talking about this, you've watched this, you know from reading de Lubac, he's not a man of exaggeration. Mm-hmm. He's very careful. He cites his sources, He expresses it clearly. There's not a bunch of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, excessive emphasis on things. You know, as when I was growing up, you know, uh, dragnet, just the facts, ma'am. You know. So when when he says something like that, most penetrating diagnosis of our civilization. That's a very powerful statement coming from someone like him.
1: It is, and I sent von Balthasar's Truth of the World to an Orthodox Jewish philosophy professor I had in college, and he read it and he wrote me back and he said, This is the most penetrating diagnosis of our civilization. (laughs) I mean he practically said this. (laughs) He had ever read and he said, "And I've read them all." And so, for this Jewish man to see in von Bubis this genius, and to declare him in this these kinds of terms, you know, that's called triangulation.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Anything before page one forty eight? I've got, I've got a high I've got Well, a this I've extraordinary got on Page one forty
2: eight. Sorry, sorry, but, Vivian.
1: Um, this he you know he mentions his uh von, von Balthasar's extraordinary learning Where? on page one forty seven uh, okay. when one observes the extraordinary learning, and like you just said, de Lubach is not using uh superlatives and all this unnecessarily, and I was just in von Balthasar's library thirty thousand books he read every single one in Greek, Latin, German, English, French, Spanish. Uh, and he had a photographic memory, and so he only had to read a book once. And, and, and this is the key thing. Extraordinary learning that is displayed without pedantry. In other words, the way von Ballasar writes, all of this vast knowledge just spills out out of the page, but in this very unassuming, un, un, uh, self aggrandizing way. It's just what he knows is coming out onto the page.
0: Well, Vivian, you you saw what now the archives in the basement, you know, all like like library stacks. And when I visited him, I don't know, it was 1995 something like that. I stayed in the house, and it was a four-story apartment building type house. Uh, and every room except the bathroom and the kitchen had bookshelves on all walls. Any any wall space was a bookshelf. Plus, there was uh, you know, a library in the basement with these stacks. And so, you know, I I had given him this book in German by Manfred Hauke called uh, Women in the Church on the idea of women's ordination because that was going to be the topic to be discussed by the Papal Commission of Theologians in the next year. And I gave him the book and I, and I said, it's about a 500-page book. I said, uh, have you read this? No, I haven't read it. Oh, well, I'll take a look at it, he said. So, okay, 9 o'clock, we were having dinner, we go to bed. I get up, and I go through all the other rooms in the house, and I'm looking at, at these bookshelves, you know? And, you know, Germans, they've got, they've got like 26 volumes of Nietzsche and 27 volumes of Hegel and 32 volumes of Schleiermacher, whatever, as well as other things, you know, as far as literature and everything. So I, I would go, and randomly, I'd pick out a book, you know, open it up, and sure enough, on every you know every every book there was just pencil notations on it. I said, "Well, how many are there?" I, I, I'm kind of a amateur wannabe mathematician, so you know I, I counted how many books there were on a shelf, and how many shelves there were, and how many in a room, and down in the basement. And I calculated, and, then, and when I came around, I calculated thirty thousand volumes, which yep. turns out what it was. What, so thirty thousand volumes, and Apparently, he'd read them all he and read not, them not all. all, so the next morning we're having breakfast, okay remember I've given him a five hundred page book or four four hundred fifty or whatever, the night before, and he says, uh well, father fecio, uh, you know I've read this now, uh, and I'm going to tell the theological commission we no longer need to discuss this topic because everything we need to know is in this book, you know then I asked him. As a publisher, I said, well, do you have any recommendations for books in German which we should translate in English? He walks over and he says, Josef Pieper. He said, anything by Pieper, it's not in English, put in English. But that was my experience of those 30,000 volumes.
1: Yes, yes.
0: just say,
1: just, just the way
2: of encapsulating and summarizing the discussion you've just been having on page 148, below that break with the asterisks, um, there's very beautiful prose by the Lubach praising the, uh, the depth and breadth of from Balthasar's...
0: Um, well, read that. I was going to read that, but you read it, Joseph. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, that, I highlighted the whole passage, because apart from anything else, it just says what you said about the, the extent of his knowledge and reading, but it's also written very beautifully. I mean, even in translation. This man is perhaps the most cultivated of his time. If there is a Christian culture anywhere, it is here. Classical antiquity, the great European literatures, the metaphysical tradition, the history of religions, the diverse experiments of contemporary man in search of himself, and, above all, the sacred sciences, St. Thomas, St. Bonaventure, Patristics, all of it, not to speak of the Bible. There is nothing great that is not welcomed and made vital by this great mind. Writers and poets, mystics and philosophers, old and new, Christians of all persuasions, he invites all of them to add their note. For him, all of these voices are necessary in order to bring about for the greater glory of God the Catholic
0: Symphony.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: In one of his books his title, is titled Truth is Symphonisch. Truth is symphonic. Oh, you put that in <laughs> Okay, that's good. One little comment on that, the parenthesis there, where he says patristics, parenthesis, all of it, close we're in the West, and theologically, our knowledge of the fathers was basically Augustine, Bonaventure, and so on, which is wonderful. But we had neglected the other lung of the church, the Eastern fathers, you know, Athanasius, Gravenissian, Gravenassianus, and Basil, and so on. And Balthasar knew all those as well, and that he integrated those. Well, this is good. I mean, we'll come back uh, next session to continue this. It's a beautiful chapter on a wonderful theologian that everybody should know something about, it seems to me. Thank you all. God bless you. See you next week. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.